1: Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, ice houses blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous, and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, Dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980. And each week, we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book. And Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. This week on the show, we have reached a kind of, a kind of interesting point. There's not really, one of the misnomers about police work, Dad, and please feel free to, you know, correct me here, is that you don't really have a nemesis. Like, you don't really have an arch nemesis, recurring villain in real police work. There's no, you know, when you're a general duties police officer, you don't get a Moriarty figure, right? You don't, have someone who keeps popping up and causing problems for you. But I think this chapter dealing with this specific character is about as close as the book version of John Behoeven gets to having someone who just keeps, you know, arriving in their lives
2: and and causing problems. Would you say that's a fair appraisal of Len Beter? Definitely. Knowing what we're going to talk about today, I read the chapter. Mm-hmm. Can I just say also, Paul, I'm really excited that we've we appear to have gotten over the technical difficulties we had last week. Holy shit. We had so many people reach out from the listener
1: base offering to come up with really innovative solutions, none of which would have worked. But uh, I think I may have, and I haven't told you this yet, Dad, but I may have actually salvaged the audio from the first episode. Not all of it, but like 17 minutes. Paul,
2: if I, uh-huh. yeah, that's um, that was gold. I know. it was Speaking really of good. gold, I mean, it yep. goes with the Olympics, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, very yeah, good. A whole yep. thing. Um, look, when I think of, and off mic, I used his real name inadvertently, Paul, and you you reminded me how careful I have to be. Well, we got to be, this is, you know, this is a litigious
1: time we live in. And mm. I don't know if he's still alive, but if you'd named him, yeah, it would have been
2: mm. problematic. Mm. We used to be issued with, Dreary police uniforms back in the nineteen eighties, and for non- anyone that. Why were, they dre- Why were they dreary? I mean, blue's quite a kind of. No, nah, they were they were old fashioned. You couldn't no, even right. see our appointments. Everything had to be concealed. Remember, remember yeah. that 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 sort of idea in in the police force back in the nineteen eighties that they didn't believe. I'm talking early eighties. Mm-hmm. They didn't think your gun and handcuffs should be ever seen by the public which is just so dangerous when you think about in an emergency situation, in a high-level stress situation, when you really, really need to get the gear out quickly, you'd be fumbling around trying to sort of lift your oversized coat, sort of, you know, the material. Yeah. And then you had to sort of tuck it in behind your revolver. Bearing in mind, once you'd got to that stage, the, the early, up until when I joined the police force, The firearms, the 38 six-shot Smith & Wesson Mm -hmm. um, revolver, which did not have a safety, which I think is a plus, Um, but the gun was actually housed in a fully enclosed holster. So not only did you have to lift your coat up, somehow tuck it behind the holster, you then had to reach down and unclip it Mm-hmm. Then, then somehow or other, meanwhile, you might be being shot at. Imagine that.
1: So there's basically just several steps in the way of you using. Yeah, the and actual- eventually
2: when you got yeah. your firearm out, mm-hmm. well, hopefully, um, you know, you were still a, sort of around to be able to to do it. Now, I mean- early on in my service, that's how it was, but then they began to change things and they brought on a new type of jacket where all your appointments yeah, were fully exposed, and from a safety perspective, really important. And I guess, right. yeah, from policing's perspective, the you know they wanted to change the uh, the persona, I guess, with the public. What do you think brought that about? Was there a sort of wave of police being
1: attacked, or was it just sort of a we need to look? I mean, I feel like people had a I think I think the uniform should do the job of mm. any appointments, right? Like you should yeah. see the uniform and react a certain way. But I'm I'm really curious because Len. Beta was not a what I would call a physically imposing person. Len was a little guy. Do you think that kind of do you think his height played into his personality and his sort of
2: shortcomings, or is that a ridiculous generalization? Um, look, the reason I touched on the outfit was that he actually had to go to the police tailor. Um, you know how you've got clowns and some clowns for those people that have ever been to a circus will understand that sometimes you've got a normal kind of male or female person, but uh-huh. what they do is they slip into a massive, oversized, humongous set of trousers where there's mm. actually a gap right around mm. them. And You mean like they- if,
1: if I were to kind of go into your closet when I was a kid and put on your adult pants... Mm. Yeah. Right? Just like like Tom Hanks post, you know, in Big, where he kind of wakes up in his adult clothes like that. So,
2: are you saying that Len... Well, he, he gets- was so wide mm. that he actually had to go and get special pants made. God oh, bless. Okay. He, his his waist was the same width as his shoulders. And he had a haircut that was not dissimilar to a very famous um, German um, in the Second World War. Um, who was the leader of a certain party in Germany. He looked just... That, that type of haircut... It was, it was a pretty bad haircut. Um, and he had very, very unusual features. His eyes were very, very far apart. And he, his hair was actually... It was like combed down a little bit like Norman Gunston. Okay. And if anyone would like to sort of have a look at some photos of Norman Gunston in costume... You'll get a sense of the sort of the look, and yeah, I, I as everyone knows, he was my buddy. I really felt I, I, I drew the short straw, so to speak. But of course, in policing, as one goes through one's time, you invariably get to work with these people, but they're no longer your buddy. And some years went by, Paul, and Len was promoted to. Supervising Sergeant. Because when we last saw him, at the
1: start of loose units, he was ostensibly a... Senior Constable. Yeah, okay. And he was he was your buddy. So, basically, mm. he was the person assigned with sort of showing you the ropes. And would mm. you say he did
2: a good job at that? Yeah, I think level? he did a fairly good job. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, I mean, he stuffed up a few times, you know, the night in the park, that, that infamous night where he just dropped a few shots into the air. Uh, that was pretty scary. Um, but he he had a traffic background. So he was very traffic focused. So you mm-hmm. knew that if you went out on the road with him, he would be focusing on traffic matters, which I always kind of felt was not super important because after all, we did have the highway patrol. Hang on. Did he?
1: Ca- I didn't know he carried that sort of. Um, focus through to regular police work. I thought that just meant that he was very detail-oriented and petty. I didn't think that you would be driving around doing general duties and he would lapse back into traffic.
2: Always, always. Really? And in fact, we pulled over. He, he, He was a stickler for incredibly obscure, tiny, tiny little things within the Motor Traffic Act that were so obscure you'd never, ever, ever learn about them. And he, to, to sort of impress that particular point, one day he saw a Volkswagen. And this is so, so surreal. It had driving lights on the front bumper. And he got me to pull the car over to prove a point about his knowledge of the quintessentially obscure Bizarre parts of the Motor Traffic Act that he may well have been the only person in New South Wales to even have read about them. And he was going to show me one day by way of. We pulled over a Volkswagen, he walked around to the front of the VW with the owner and he looked at the driving lights because people used to get like spotlights on cars, and I used to do it with my cars. That was a big thing in sort of the 70s where. Even if you never went off-road or out in the bush, people love to get massive sort of driving lights, which I did to a few of my cars. And he showed me the back of the light and the owner's standing there, and there's a wire that travels from the back of the spotlight that is attached to the top of the bull bar, or the bumper bar in this case. Now, this wire travels through the body of the car into and up to the battery and, you know, various other things. But what happens is, and this is so, so funny that I remember it, and it's kind of sad in a way, but it's just such a silly thing to remember. But when the wire travels through the body of the car, so what a lot of handy, handy people, you know, teenagers would do is they'd drill a hole through um, the body of the car, then they'd thread the wire through because they came as kits. So you could either get them done professionally mm-hmm. or you'd do it yourself. But the wire that was plastic coated, can you imagine this wire going through a drilled hole through the body of the car? But through vibration, the the kind of microscopic sharp sort of edges of the circle would slowly over time wear through the plastic wire to the actual copper and there could be a fire hazard. You with me? or they yeah. could short out. Mm-hmm. There, there was a specific offence in the Motor Traffic Act that said you had to have a rubber grommet between the body of the car and the wire to prevent that very thing happening. And this particular person, this poor person, had been pulled over for my, for my buddy to make a point which turned out to be a very expensive point for the owner and I was to that to this day felt it was terribly terribly unfair but it was kind of a lesson that he was showing me and he gave the person an infringement notice and a yellow defect label for not having rubber grommet now i mean that's to know that sort of level of the motor traffic act is kind of scary for me but perhaps not to the highway Patrol, so that was kind of an example of his sort of micro knowledge that I found quite infuriating, and was sure that I would never ever use that offence in my entire police career, which I didn't.
1: And I've looked up because I didn't know what a rubber grommet was. It's like a little rubber ring that costs about eighty three cents. Correct. Like it's a. It's a, And okay. So what you're saying is he was very petty and petty. From from what I understand, he basically. He enjoyed getting people. I mm. enjoyed, you know, that's a kind of the quota thing we talked about. We've talked about this many times. You know, the, the the possibility. Sorry, I'm very stumbly today. We've talked about many times the possibility that uh, if you're in traffic, you are about quotas. And it seems like he carried that through. But at this point, you hadn't worked with him for a couple of years, no, right? No. Okay. Okay. And so when you bump into someone you haven't seen for a few years, I guess the assumption is, all right. They've probably developed as a person, potentially, right? Mm-hmm. They've probably made some f- made some headway or grown into themselves or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Now he'd been promoted,
2: correct? Mm-hmm. And he became um, one of the senior sergeants at Mossman Police Station, mm-hmm. which was sort of the substation of North Sydney, in a beautiful area, undeniably a magnificent suburb, um, and with a, with a very sort of sort of dark. Sort of underbelly, which a lot of people in in Mossman sort of would would cringe and be very upset to know that they're magnificent and very, mm-hmm. and be very upset to know that they're magnificent and very, you know, beneath that that veneer of um, you know, sort of, what's a good way of putting it, Paul? Um, civility. Yeah, civility and respectability um, is 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 a seedy undercurrent. Um, which I always like to bring up because it's um, it, these 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 supposed wonderful suburbs are not always as they appear, and um, Mossman is is to this day a classic example. Um, but um, one night I was working on car six ten. I was a senior senior man. Um, I'd been in the job for a few years. Len was the station sergeant so if you arrest someone or you bring someone in that is intoxicated or sometimes people just needed basically somewhere to sleep yeah and, and they wouldn't be charged they look there were lots of situations uh, back in the 80s where if you were drunk and disorderly which kind of was an offense although I never really took it that seriously sometimes you, particularly if, if the weather was really bad, midwinter, storm, you know, some homeless guy walking the street, obviously just desperate, looking like, you know, looking for a bus shelter. And sometimes you could sort of, I, I won't say bend the rules, Paul, but from a compassionate point of view, um, and I've always regarded myself as, you know, definitely having compassionate undertones, sometimes it was a way of, um, you know, helping people out. And then in the morning, and they'd get a get a good meal, they'd get a blanket, they'd get a nice bed, um, and then you'd just sort of let them out in the morning and they'd, they'd you know, go on their merry way. Gotcha. But that does not happen today, um, although I do know that it does happen in certain country areas. So this particular guy, he would have been in his 70s, um, fairly well-dressed, um, but he was moderately intoxicated um, and we brought him back to Mossman Police Station and because they used to have this thing called the Summary Offences Act where it was um, an offence to urinate in public, tell a police officer to get fucked. There were various sort of minor, minor offences. Now that has since been repealed but it was very, very controversial, that act, the Summary Offences Act, because people okay. used to be charged on relatively minor grounds so you know the process is when you bring someone back to the station they are processed now Len I know was having some pretty major family dramas that I didn't know about at this point in time but subsequently I came to find out a few things and I was sort of doing other things and this gentleman who was as I said he was i i I would imagine he was between the ages of 70 and 80 really getting on and all of a sudden i'm sort of on the other side of the counter so technically i can't see len's lower half of his body i can only see the top of him and the top of the the other guy the elderly gentleman Mm -hmm. and things started to become a little bit heated and len was was clearly losing it and you know, had been sort of, I had noticed over the preceding, say, six months, was really starting to to unravel. And on this particular night, and he did not have a propensity for violence that you'd seen, anyway. That I'd seen. You're right. Yeah. But he basically grabbed this guy, grabbed his shoulders, and started shaking him. And then he um he kicked him in the shin, and I heard this almighty uh, crack. Oh God. Um. And the guy basically buckled over and it was a very traumatic uh, thing to witness. Um, I, I technically didn't see the foot come into contact with this elderly gentleman's leg, but I certainly heard it and, you know, I didn't need to be Einstein to figure out what had happened. And, you know, I was clearly shaken and appalled. And instead of sort of Len backing off, he just basically went on the attack and then... He demanded that I put this guy in one of the cells. Um, so I went around, and I'm sort of this guy was pretty, pretty badly. You know, he'd been look. I I don't know whether he his leg was broken, but it was it was really heavy. So hang on, and what did the guy do to provoke? Len? Nothing. He was just just sort of um not being compliant with with Len, who was trying to process him and and it was just a bit loud and so but nothing nothing that normally would sort of upset or antagonize um you know a station sergeant who's basically seen everything in their career yeah um you remember how we talk about joe harding at north sydney police station who was the epitome of i never ever saw him or heard him raise his voice or lose his cool Right, and that's yeah. the kind of demeanor you
1: need when you're dealing with like, frustrating because the admin stuff can get frustrating and that's kind of what a lot of your job would be as station sergeant, right? correct?
2: Correct, and, and it reminds me a little bit of watching the, the, the K1 downhill slalom in, in the water yesterday. Right. Some of the people in these one-man kayaks, they're so big and powerful and they, they, they're, kind, they're kind of fighting the river. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. Whereas some of the people that do incredibly well, they use the river. They kind of become a part of it, and they use that, that all that energy, in their in their to their advantage. Which is what Joe Harding used to do. They cut with the grain of the. They wood go with it. Against it. Yeah, you don't okay. piss these people off. I mean, these yep. prisoners. Some some prisoners. And, and it used to always amaze me how they became relatively compliant, mm. based on. The way you traded them.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: And Paul, you know, um, we've had some dramas on the weekend in relation to the big demonstration up here in Sydney. And there was one police officer that was thrown, that he was just literally covered in ink. I don't mm. know whether you saw it. I don't know whether you saw what happened. He, this is the most extraordinary thing, he went over to the crowd and he shook their hands. Can you believe that? And they interviewed him later and he said that he felt that was the best way to handle this this situation was to actually approach the demonstrators and sort of almost make peace. And it's all on film and it's the most, I just found it incredibly wonderful. And it turns out because they had the guy's name, Senior Constable, and he's the guy that I was involved with. He was running the prosecution of a case I was involved in last year with that painting. Where, oh, wow, okay, okay. And it turned yeah. out to be the same guy, but can you imagine in a in a big, fierce demonstration, a police officer that's just been covered, pelted with, with radical quantities of black ink, he actually, instead of completely losing it, he walks over to... The crowd and and and, and there he is shaking hands. Now, that's a wonderful thing to do to sort of, you know. It is. I mean, what I'm sitting here going, okay,
1: this is a very complicated situation. There's a pandemic. Uh, Social distancing is important and none of these people are wearing masks or vaccinated and you're touching their hands. But no, that's, that's academic. I really appreciate the gesture. Mm. I mean, this protesting, just a quick sidebar, the protesting is mm. fascinating. We might actually deal with it on loose ends mm. later this mm. week. Yeah, yeah. But what you're saying is that it is the opposite kind of temperament possessed by Len Beater. Yeah, who... he, he, yeah he
2: had a brain snap.
1: So, he's dealing with a, uh, with a
2: non-compliant- um... but, but defenseless old guy.
1: Absolutely. Who you Absolutely. could literally have
2: sneezed and he would have fallen over. And this, and Len basically snapped because he wasn't doing snapped. what he wanted. Kicked the crap out of him, potentially broke his leg. Yes, you're and then, and then, worse than that, mm-hmm. because I realised that um, that this guy needed urgent medical attention. Mm-hmm. But you look, look, listeners, <clears throat> just just think about me. I'm in my early twenties. Um, it's the early '80s. The police force ran to a different beat. Mm -hmm. Trust me, it was totally different. Nowadays, I just can't even imagine that happening. Although I do know that that prisoners do get bashed, and you still occasionally see it on the news, and some of the scenes are horrendous. And it's all on video. There were no videos back then. There was just, there was nothing. There were no mobiles. I mean, you know to have caught this incident on film you would have had to have had sort of a handheld super 8 old-fashioned movie camera that's, basically that's, would have had to yeah you would have had to arrange for Harry Potter with his uh crime show to kind of rock up yeah, uh, yeah. and you know you didn't just know and it was all and you just yeah you, you, look I guess you were thinking about your you know your own situation as well mm. <clears throat> but as the as this story unfolds paul the listeners will will get a get a, a better sense of where this is going because What happened was this guy was on um, really, really critical heart medication. Yeah. He made reference to Len about the medication. And Len reached into this guy's pocket and he then threw the medication that was life sustaining. He threw it into the bin. And then he basically frog marched this guy down towards the cells and then sort of and i'm sort of following because he's kind of in my he's my responsibility this this elderly gentleman yeah and uh len basically you know just threw him in the cell um took it upon himself to basically take over the whole situation he'd completely and clearly lost the plot and i was just sort of standing there aghast and um yeah and that was an afternoon shift so, so,
1: hang on. Did you go and get the
2: heart medicine? Um, I went in and got the medicine out of the bin, but I had to do it very surreptitiously because uh, if Len had have seen me do that, I would have been up shit creek without a paddle. Right. And then, you know, I'm really, really sort of... I'm caught in a very awkward place, but I managed to get back to the cell very quietly and I gave the guy his medication... And I made sure he was relatively okay, but... And this is not in the book, Paul. Yeah. What happened was I went home. It was the end of my shift. Feeling very, very uncomfortable about the situation. Now, you've got what's called the night officer. That is a very senior officer that travels around all the police stations in the district. Mm -hmm. And he has a driver and some of the senior night officers would tell their driver as they were leaving a police station where they were going to go next, which was code for the driver to be able to quickly notify the station, which kind of, in a funny way, listeners and Paul, defeats the point of the night officer. The night officer's job was to come to stations unannounced and basically see what was happening. Because there were shenanigans happening at certain police stations, mm-hmm. and you know they wanted to try some officers, night officers, wanted to catch the catch people out. However, some officers, as I said to you, would and it was kind of a, an unwritten um, rule, and, and it, it happened to me. I was the night officer driver. Um, the very first time I drove the night officer, he was the founder of the tactical response group, which is like the riot squad. He was a hard man and the very first night I met him, he threw me as a wide-eyed, very, very junior police officer. He throws me a pair of binoculars and I just stood there and he looked at me and he clearly knew that I thought, what on earth are these for? And he said to me, he said, John, these are for you in case we get involved in any surveillance, now, that's, a, that's an action man, you know, and I was bloody excited. But he would always say to me, as we were leaving a station at 2 in the morning, he'd look at me and he'd say, let's say we're leaving, I'll just give you an example, we're, we're leaving, say, Gordon Police Station. Mm-hmm. He would say to me, John, our next station is Hornsby. Now, when he said that to me, he expected me to get on the blower and call Hornsby. So when we rocked up to Hornsby, everything was sweet. But on this particular night, the night officer with the driver mm-hmm. rocked into Mossman. One of the key responsibilities of the night officer was to check the welfare of anyone in custody. Gotcha. And When this night officer walks in and says to the shift that's working from 11pm, Len Beat has gone home. I've gone home. It's a whole new shift. They would have expected Len to have passed on all that information about the guy in the cell. When the night officer rocked up two or three in the morning, says to the sergeant, is there anyone in custody? The sergeant says, yes, we have, (laughs) you know, however many people. The night officer goes, opens the door to the cell... Mm -hmm. and he goes in, and he makes sure that every single person, in this case one person, is still alive. That is a basic thing that they used to do. Mm. Now, when this night officer goes in to the cell, he immediately realises that this guy, this elderly gentleman, is in dire need of medical aid. He knows that what has happened to this guy, without saying anything, he doesn't need to sort of ask 10 questions. He can clearly see that this guy has been kicked and has sustained a serious injury to one of his legs. Sure. He immediately organises the ambulance. This gentleman is conveyed to Royal North Shore Hospital. And can you imagine the incredible shitstorm? Because the, the night officer can't and won't ever let things slide, and particularly in this particular relatively serious case. So the next thing I hear about, I mean, the next thing I hear about this whole drama is when I get a notification to go to Internal Affairs Even just saying the words internal affairs today gives me the shudders and it was made very clear to me why I was going to internal affairs and I'll never forget, I received a phone call from Len, he was on stress leave, he'd gone off on stress leave, he wasn't in Sydney, he was somewhere up on the north coast and he calls me and he basically says to me, he said, John, I was your buddy. Um, They're out to get me and basically, I want you to, well, you know, basically lie um, as to what you saw. And that put me in a very, very awkward Position, one that I resented. However, I was adamant that I was not going to be dishonest and I was going to answer every question with absolute honesty. Okay. With absolute honesty. Okay. In internal affairs. Internal affairs, everyone in the station, probably everyone in the district, knew that I was going to internal affairs. And it's a it's a terrible, scary place. Do you want me to talk about the uh, going to internal affairs? Yes, very much so. So they were in fourteen College Street, opposite Hyde Park. Um, it's where Christine used to work. In fact, Christine worked in internal affairs, but not at that time. Um, and that's where the Commissioner of Police was. The Sydney Police Centre did not exist. Everything happened at Police Headquarters. It's probably at least maybe fifteen between fifteen and twenty floors, and you know that's where I went on that very first day to join the New South Wales Police Force as a civilian to do my medical. That's where police recruiting were. Another place where Christine worked, but on this fateful day, I uh, I just I just was sh- basically shitting shitting bricks, and you know they keep you waiting. When you go into police headquarters, it, it was as though... I, I mean, I'm not saying I wasn't paranoid, but it's as though every single person in that building knows. And when you come out on that special floor of internal affairs, it's um, because people don't know why you're there. They probably assume that you've done something terrible because it's heavy. And eventually when I went into what is ostensibly an interrogation room... I was interviewed by a detective chief superintendent. Can you imagine the rank of this guy? He was a massive guy, very, very friendly, kind face, almost beguiling. And he made me feel at ease and very comfortable. And he said, John, the only reason you're here is that this particular sergeant has done something um, and there have been allegations made and we're here to to sort it out and, and meter out justice where, where it's deserved. And um, there was another detective sergeant, so I'm a very junior constable being interviewed by... You know, these guys are probably ex-homicide squad. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're master interrogators. Can you imagine? These are the sorts of guys that would interrogate at Internal Affairs, Roger Rogerson. Yeah. And here am I being interrogated? That's frightening. And you're in general duties at this point. So I'm in my extremely uniform. Extremely green. Yeah. I'm in my full uniform, and I'm shitting, shitting myself. I'm feeling. But you know, I was there to. It's just basically. Um, it was, I was there to, um, you know, to tell the truth and, um, basically, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time, but there were lots of other people that were out to get Len Beta for lots of other reasons. I just had no concept, didn't know. And, um, and they, they asked me what I saw. And I described everything in some detail, but I made it very clear to them that technically I did not see Len's foot come into contact with the gentleman's leg. I mean, that's a given. However, when questioned further, I had to say, of course, and almost wanted to say, that I did hear certain things and it was in my opinion that this is what had happened this is what had actually transpired and i kind of they were they were very nice in that they they were very pleased with my interview Mm -hmm. um i told the truth um why here's a question i'm sure
1: lots of people are asking this question uh len seems like a nasty piece of work and it's very clear what he did why didn't you just go yeah he fucking kicked him like why why did you go into full um, you know, oh, objective, cold, just the facts mode.
2: That's a good question, but you know, one of the questions was, did you see this happen? Right. And clearly, I didn't. Clearly, I c- I couldn't have seen it. I was on the other side of a counter. Can right. you imagine going into court and saying that you'd seen something, and then they figure out that, hang on a sec, that's actually impossible?
1: Yeah, but here's and- the th- let me let me give you a metaphor. Let's say he was holding a gun, aiming at, aiming it at the guy's foot. Right. Mm. Yep and he fired the gun, yep. and you say, well, I didn't see the bullet enter the leg. Mm. But but then you would say, but it's pretty clear that given a bullet was found in his True. leg, right? Yeah, so if you 100%. saw Len's leg, right? So yeah. did, did you I do... Ev- what I'm saying is, this is important. What I'm saying is, did you do everything you could to spell out that it's clear that that's what he did, but technically you didn't see the moment of impact?
2: Oh, 100%. Okay. I mean, that'd be like saying, they in, in your to use your, your analogy, Paul, that would yep. be like them saying, did you see him pull the trigger? No, I didn't. Okay. Did you hear a gunshot? Yes, I did. When Is you the... went round to the other side of the counter, was his foot blown off? Yeah. And was Len holding a smoking gun? Okay. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I knew. But they they were good, these guys. This Look, something really weird happened that day. I felt... I didn't feel as I was being disloyal to, to Len. Mm-hmm. If I had not have told the truth, I would have been disloyal to the victim, and I would have been disloyal to myself, and I would have been disloyal to the truth. And Paul, you and I both know, as do the legal people at Penguin, I have no skeletons in my closet. I have never ever been, I've never received a phone call from an ex-police or current serving police officer, or a crim or anyone. To say, oh, but hang on a sec! No, no, no! I never took a quid. I was very honourable. When things got to the point, and we talk about it in later chapters yeah. about, about you know going into plain clothes, etc. Mm-hmm. But I've always, you look, you know that thing about corruption where you can't dip your toe in and then pull back. You are you are cursed. Yes. And it's there forever. You can't, and I just, I, I'm so pleased. I never verbaled anyone. I witnessed a lot of bad shit, and I guess talking about it is good because it also makes the public realise that the police are far from infallible. Um, but weirdly, Paul, when I went back to North Sydney Police Station, something quite extraordinary happened. I really liked this super senior Uh, detective at internal affairs. He was erudite, cultured, softly spoken. He was just, I'd almost say charismatic. Okay. Guess what? A few weeks later, he ends up the officer in charge at North Sydney Police Station. And when he came down, now he was in plain clothes for many years, but he had to put the uniform back on. He came down to that station as our new officer in charge and he looked at me and he smiled. And, And I felt bloody great. Can you imagine? Because I knew him. He, I, I'd got to sort of be with him in this almost one-on-one situation, telling the truth. He knew he could rely on me as a police officer. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine if I had have lied in that record of interview, which and then, plenty it, of police do. Yeah, and then
1: he would have been running the joint. And, and
2: then he comes down and goes, oh, well, you're you're, you are, you're a fuckwit. I'm, I don't trust you. Your shit. He, oh, that's he, sorry, he, sorry. To be clear, that's what he would have said had you lied, not what he did. Correct, say. correct. No, <laughs> what he, yeah, he he was absolutely stoked. Great, okay. At Paul, um, there's sort of a in in closing to this particular story, something pretty creepy happened okay. that I don't think I've ever told you. Right at the end of every night shift, um, like the seven nights. So on the Thursday morning, you know, we'd do a bit of a cook-up mm-hmm. and occasionally we would go to the Oaks Hotel after, after we'd finished our seventh night and, you know, you'd have a drink and you'd have a barbecue and I'll never, ever forget what happened this one morning. Um, a particular detective sergeant, scary guy, really scary he came up to me and he he was very charming and he put his arm around me and he kind of pulled me in like in a sort of a bit of a huddle he'd sort of taken me away from the rest of the crowd then sort of made out that he was being really really lovely and friendly and he said to me he said now John tell me what really happened that night at the station, and I, I told him the story, and I didn't. I sort of trusted him, um, and I kind of told him in some graphic detail, bearing in mind that that was weeks after the event, and now I'm talking to you. You know, yeah, of course, almost forty years later. So imagine the conversation I had with him; it would have been very visceral, mm. and he was a he was a very very. Yeah, he was a serious detective sergeant. And um, anyway, a few weeks later, one of my friends, in fact, um, Dave, you know, one of the, the guys, my da- diving buddies. Yep. Dave comes up to me and, and this I, I really kind of never ever really got over this, Paul. But Dave uh, on the QT pulls me aside and he says, um, the word is you can't be trusted, John. And I, I just was then it knocked me for six.
1: Hang on, what do you what do you mean?
2: Well this detective sergeant was trying to suss me out as to whether or not I would dob in another police officer. And I basically told this detective sergeant what had happened and he kind of thought, Okay, well you can't be trusted. So in other words, you don't go. You don't. You don't protect your mates. Can you believe this? So I've never told you this, have I? No. Hmm. But you didn't. You didn't do anything wrong, did you? No, but I was telling him about what I'd seen another police officer do. Right. Okay. And for this detective sergeant, all bets are off. Mm. You will never become a detective, because you can't be trusted. Right. And because you can imagine the shit the D's see all the time, and so, they don't, yeah, and they don't was,
1: talk. And they don't talk about it, right? So they, they
2: certainly just, don't talk about it. Yeah. If you if you are working in with back in the eighties with like in a detective's office, and oh. you decide to to say something, you're you're fucked. Yeah, which you I may as well pack your bags and your family and fuck off to another state. I'm really glad you didn't end up a detective
1: because honestly, I don't think keeping that kind of secret is. Uh... Healthy. I mean, if you say something fucked, you should go. Yeah, he kicked him. It's fucked, right? And then everyone should. I just feel like honesty is the best policy. I mean, that mm. shit was drummed into me as a kid by uh, two ex-cops. So I think, you know, god damn it. Mm. So that that sucks. Well, yep. okay. Well, what, what? Okay, just in in closing, real quick, what
2: happened to Len after that? Do you know? Um. Yeah. Look, I kind of lost contact, but he. He ended up going to uh, internal affairs and... uh, Wait, working at that internal affairs or no? No, sorry. He he went to internal affairs to be interrogated. Yep. And um, it was never, ever discussed. Um, I moved on and um, I never saw him again. Okay. So, uh, but yeah. In fact, when he called me from uh, up north, he started crying on the telephone. Right. So, he would have been beyond shit scared. What seems to me is
1: there is a concept of middle management, that kind of, you know, David Brent-esque character who sort of fails upwards for a while like that. You've said it before, if you're on the force long enough, you get promoted upwards. So you've got a traffic cop with delusions of grandeur who probably shouldn't have ever been in a real position of power anyway. Who finds himself sort of given more power than he should have. And as a result, you know, first of all, a person like that probably shouldn't have a gun. So he fires at a suspect and then years mm. later he snaps because he's impatient and he kicks mm. an old guy in the- Like, he seems like the kind of guy who really shouldn't have been there in the first place. And it feels like, mm. you know, if structures were in place to make sure that only the right people got promoted, then less people would have been hurt. And hopefully that is, that has been a thing that has, you know, been implemented better in modern day mm. police. But look- yep. um. Thank you for telling us the story of Len Bita and kind of closing that chapter out. It's interesting that he kind of spans the entire book, but he's a fascinating person. Um, and, a, you know, and a very dodgy one. But look, mm. uh, thanks for talking with us, Dad. Obviously, we're all under pretty heavy lockdown right now, but I'm really mm. enjoying the podcast. Uh, we'll be back later this week for more Loose Ends. We're going to talk about, I think we might touch on the riots. And if I can, I will try and salvage the lost episode. But in the meantime, Make sure you hit us up online with any questions for Friday's episode at facebook.com forward slash Loose Units. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.